Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome to Godpod number 58. 58. Goodness me, he's older than I am. Wow, that's encouraging. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> well, in terms of if you count one year, but if we did one a year, it would have been older than be. Exactly, that's right. In which case, you've been doing it when you were a child. But I'm yes. sure Mike was always theologically astute. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Exactly. <laughs> <From birth. laughs> it's gone downhill ever since. <laughs> well, as you can probably tell from the voices already, it is uh, the old home team who is here for Godpod 58, uh, which is Michael. Hello. And Jane. Hello. And myself, uh, Graham. And um, we are sitting in our usual little studio. We've got rather fancy microphones this time, even better than before. So hopefully you can hear this even more clearly than you have previous Godpods. We must apologise for that. <laughs> Just, that is a drawback. Uh, and it also bleeps. So we were told that you won't hear the bleeps, but if we get thrown off our stride, it yeah. might be because... And occasionally this, 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 the alarm system says things like system trouble. I'm not sure it's a comment a on our theology. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but we will, if we utter things that are not quite right, you can hear that voice in the background. Anyway, um, we've got uh, quite a lot of uh, things have come through from the email and um, some really good questions from various people. So keep them coming through if you are listening to Godpod and you have a question. As always, we can't promise to answer all of them, but we'll have a go at uh, some of the ones that seem particularly interesting. And um, the first one we thought we'd try to tackle today is uh, from Thomas, Thomas Dean from Edinburgh, or Thomas Frey Edinburgh, as he puts it. Uh, I'm a worship leader up in Edinburgh, and I've got a question for you that I hope you guys might have time to mull over. Uh, how do we start treating the Holy Spirit more as a person? I think if you analysed our language about the Holy Spirit from a linguistic point of view, you'd probably come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit is some, kind of, some sort of God juice or a gas-like substance that fills us like helium to fly. Doesn't quite sit right with me, but I find it entering into my perception of God. And then he says, uh, I think it would be rather better calling the Holy Spirit Dave or Gary to represent that he has a will, that he makes decisions, that he's part of the Godhead, that he is God. And so uh, I guess the question is, I'm not sure he's a serious suggestion to start calling the Holy Spirit Dave, but um, uh, it is, I suppose it's, it's an interesting observation, isn't it, that the words father and son are relational terms, they're personal terms. We, we know what a father and a son look like, but um, spirit is not particularly a relational term or a, or a personal term, and therefore it can conjure up sort of rather mechanical ideas of the work of the spirit. And, uh, but at the same time, the tradition of Christian theology always insists that the Holy Spirit is a person. So how do we navigate that one? Um, is it, do we find another language for the Holy Spirit? How do we express the sort of personhood of the spirit uh, in a way that doesn't make the spirit seem a rather impersonal force? which just impacts us in different ways. And, of course, um, the old word ghost probably doesn't help in this context either. Introduce mm. a, a different set of mm. also slightly less than fully personal uh, yeah. connotations. Holy it ghost. is important um, what you've already said, Graham, as indeed everything you say is important, <laughs> um, that, that so father and son are relational terms, so they aren't the equivalent of Dave. 
Um, they aren't proper names in that sense. Mm. They they describe a relationship or the nearest that our language can get to that relationship, what's been revealed to us of that relationship. Um, but it's also true, of course, that Holy Spirit isn't a relational word in that sense. Mm. So, I mean, I think one of the things that Holy Spirit does is remind us that we're not quite sure what we're talking about when we're talking about the personhood of God. Um, everything that God reveals about himself shows us that God is personal, but um, the word person isn't exactly what we're looking for uh, in relation to God. God isn't people like us. Yeah, I think that's, it is right. I suppose that's one of the great insights of Augustine, your great hero. Indeed. Which was that insight that the, the, the persons of the Trinity are not simply subsistences, as maybe the Greek tradition tended to say more in the fourth century. Was there are kind of separate entities that are um, talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? But I guess Augustine's great insight was that they were beings in relation to one another, and therefore highlighting the significance of the Father-Son language. And um, so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a real step forward in Trinitarian theology when he does that. I think. And and the problem, one of the other problems with calling the spirits Dave or or Gary, um, <laughs> is that. Uh, that would actually suggest that there are three gods. It would be what is known as tri- blokes. And they're all blokes. <laughs> <laughs> they're all blokes. Um, Sharon. Yes, <laughs> I, I was thinking Sharon would be good. Well, except that you're not very keen on the Holy Spirit being the feminine bit of the Trinity. No, are you, all of Jane? God is both feminine and masculine. Exactly, yes. and transcends that. Um, but but that is the problem with the word person to be used of, of the three persons. That if you import everything that we mean by person. Mm. Uh, into it, then you do have three gods. You do have tritheism, which which yep. is not not correct. Yep. Um, so, in a sense, the spirit is a reminder that we've got to be careful um, mm. how we use the word person. Mm. Uh, Father and son are more personal, but they're not full, complete, indis- in, 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 mm. discrete persons the way Dave and Gary and Sharon are. But but on the nonetheless, this is a serious point, isn't it? That the, the spirit is at least as personal yes. as the father and the son. And the problem with our language is that it can make us forget that, yes. so that we concentrate entirely on that relationship between father and son, and we're not quite sure what the Holy Spirit is for. Mm. Um, the Russian Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lossky said that the Holy Spirit takes his incarnation in the faces of the saints. Mm. And I think um, if you read Paul's letters, you you can see where he gets that idea from, that that actually we are the places where we see the Holy Spirit making us into the likeness of Christ. Um, again, that's not, in, that's not enough, but that's quite an interesting um, well, It emphasizes step that personal yeah. nature of the Spirit, that he expresses himself in persons, in human persons. Yes. I, I think that, you know, the fact that the Spirit is a different kind of term from father and son, I think it alerts us to a... Uh, seems to me a difference in the Spirit's r- role in the Trinity from that of the Father and the Son. That I guess the way I, I think of it is that if you like the, the heart of, if you like the heart of reality, the heart of all of everything that is, is the love that exists between the Father and the Son. There's an awful lot in the New Testament that writes about that. But to the Johannine writings, there's a lot about the Father loves the Son. You know, the baptism of Jesus. This is my Son whom I love. That sort of emphasis on this utterly intimate relationship between the Father and the Son and the love that exists between the Father and the Son. That love exists at the, at the heart of everything that is. And therefore, the question is, well, where does the Spirit fit into that? And it strikes me, I think that the Spirit's, in a sense, the Spirit is the part of God that, that invites us and the whole of creation into that love. 
that can only be done by God. It's only God himself who can invite us into and involve us in that love, and which is why the Spirit has to be seen as divine. It's a lot of the reasons why the early theologians sort of insisted on the divinity of the Spirit was that a lot of the things that the the Spirit is said to do in Scripture are things which only God can do, and therefore you have to ascribe divinity to, to the Spirit. And I suppose that's, I think it, it which is why I, I was slightly nervous about theology, which was simply talking in an undifferentiated way about the the love between Father, Son and Holy Spirit, some versions of the social trinity, for example, which almost imply that these three, are on, there's no real distinction between them. There's just a kind of community of love. And I want to say, well, no, the Spirit has this distinct role of inviting us into the love between the Father and the Son. And it's very interesting how, and again, in the in the New Testament, there's a lot of language between the love between the Father and the Son. But it doesn't very often say that the Spirit loves the Father or the Father loves the Spirit, now that, or that the Spirit loves the Son or the Son loves the Spirit or whatever. Now, that's not because they don't. It's just that his role is different. Um, the, the Spirit's role is, is different from that of the Father and the Son because he invites us and the whole of creation into that love. I, I agree with that, though I think it's also important not to go to the other extreme. Um, and sorry to break up the kind of Augustine love fest here. Um, <laughs> but uh, suggesting that the Spirit is just the love between the Father and the Son, because yeah. then mm. I think you do collapse into, into a binatarian position. The, the, there have to be three, whatever you call them, um, mm. and, and all of them personal, all of them loving. Mm. And I guess that Augustinian idea of the Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son, can in certain circumstances suggest that the Spirit is less than personal. He is just a, a sort yeah. of force that binds together love and Father and Son. Whereas actually if, it's a, if the Spirit is a person who actively uh, you know, proceeds from the Father through the Son, which I think is probably the right way to, 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 to put it, um, to kind of proceed from the Father through the Son to the whole of creation, to draw creation back into the love that that is at the heart of the universe, the love between the Father and the Son, that gets something of that personal language. Though I do object to Mike saying just the love between the Father and the Son. Um, <laughs> oh, I knew you'd come to the defence yes, of Augustine absolutely. at Absolutely, it has to be done. Um, because if we want to concentrate... I mean, Augustine's point is that love isn't just a feeling. Mm-hmm. Love is an active, creative um, way of living in the world that we learn from God, that is basic to God's character. So, I mean, I, I do actually agree that we need to make sure that we are making the spirit fully personal as father and son are. But I think if if we take the spirit as the bond of love really seriously, then that might mm. help us to explore mm. what we mean by love. Most of us are using love in such a wishy-washy kind of way. Mm. Um, and if it's love that actually makes the universe and into which we are invited, then it's not wishy-washy. It's mm. something... Um, extremely worth exploring. What about language like, I mean, we often use language of being filled with the spirit, as if the spirit is a kind like of... Like the helium, yes. Yes, it, or <laughs> is a kind of, you know, like water which is poured out, which fills up a, a bucket or something like that, which is a slightly impersonal language, but that's scriptural language. Or we talk about, you know, some people pray, you know, more spirit, Lord, or something like that, as if this is a substance which we're asking for more of, as opposed to a person. I mean, how, how do you how do you relate to that well, kind of language? I, in a sense, I don't have a problem with it. It can be misleading, but but I think it's also onto something, um, in the sense that uh, Jesus, for instance, you know, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Now, he obviously wasn't without the Spirit before that, but there is a sense that the Spirit can be 
given in new, in particular situations, particular um, contexts for particular tasks, um, and that so you can have particular modes of the of the presence of the spirit for the particular situation you're in. I mean, Jesus, you know, at, at, the spirit was involved in his conception. It doesn't mean, and, and he had the spirit all the way through his childhood, uh, grew by, by, with the help of the spirit. But something decisive new happened at the baptism, mm. which equipped him for a public ministry. So in a sense, I think that that problem of language actually makes a point here, which is that... Um, you can you can have not more of the spirit, but but the spirit being poured out in new ways for new tasks. Very helpful. Um, and, and but just just one thing I mean, to, to agree with the, the the question with Thomas about about the need to insist upon the personhood of the mm. spirit in a sense. You know, the language mm. that Paul uses of grieving the Holy Spirit mm. suggests yeah. that there's mm. there's a, a full a full there's more not less of personhood yeah. there than. And the, the language of the spirit is a paracletos, the sort of advocate idea. And an advocate is a person, you know, and you can't grieve a force. You no. can only grieve a person. Yeah. The spirit, the idea of the spirit comforts, the comforter again, a person comforts, a force doesn't. And so there's so much biblical language of the spirit which is personal that does and remind us that we need to insist on that. teaches us God's language, the spirit, the one who knows God's mind and helps us to learn the language of God in Romans 8. Yeah, so there's a lot of very personal yeah. stuff we could use more regularly in worship. Yeah. That's right. And uh, I can't let this go without a shameless plug for um, a book which... Um, one uh, of us has written. <laughs> one of us is, is one about of, to produce. One, one of us three persons. <laughs> Exactly, um, and, uh, it, and it's, it's me. not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Graham. I, I, I confess it. It's uh, it's a book called The Prodigal Spirit, and uh, it's coming out quite soon. In well, depending on whether you're listening to this, it may have, it may have come out already. But uh, it's um, uh, called the, the The Prodigal Spirit, uh, the Trinity, the Church, and the Future of the World. And, so um, does that imply the spirit goes away occasionally and misbehaves and then come back, comes back and repents? And it's such a shame you didn't consult Mike about the title before you wrote this book. <laughs> I know, you're such a literalist, Mike. <laughs> I think it was Jane's idea, the title, actually. I it's think it probably good. was. I take full responsibility. Yeah, I, for it's a very, like very, very, very good title. It's a very good book. I will That's very kind of you. recommend it to all of you. So it's uh, coming out in February 2011. So if that is past, you um, uh, will be able to buy it. If it's future, you kind of will be able Can to buy it. Can look forward to it. Exactly. That's right. With eager anticipation. So um, thank you very much for your question, Thomas. And uh, we move on to our second one, which actually comes from a very different part of the world, Kansas City. Oh. Kansas City in... Um, America. America. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that. Not the one in Wales, I don't think. <laughs> exactly. So this is uh, Trish Nelson, who actually we know quite well. Hello, Trish, if you're listening to this. Um from Christchurch Overland Park in Kansas City. And uh, this is a, a question that came out actually because um, in that church they've been listening to uh, uh, the Faith Track, which is one of the, um, uh, which is a set of DVDs that we brought out quite recently of We're actually ourselves. We're doing shameless plugging, are we? Shameless, lots of shameless <laughs> plugging, um, which is something you can actually get through the Alpha website and it's a, a sort of systematic theology series that Mike, Jane and I have um, produced and you can... Uh, play that in your church, in your home group, in uh, however you want to do it. But in the course of listening to Mike, which is always a dangerous thing to do, uh, this question came up. So um, this uh, says, I was captivated by Mike Lloyd. 
Oh, we we're, all are. Yeah, yes, not, we're. None so much as I. <laughs> <laughs> as he is himself. Um, his idea about evil breaking the world in some other way prior to Adam and Eve's sin. Um, and uh, so here are the questions. Can you explain Romans 5 verse 12 in the light of this theology? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, would Mike and the gang say that sin existed prior to the fall and was waiting to barge in and it took Adam and Eve to open the door with Eve's choice to eat the apple and Adam's choice to listen to the voice of his wife? Uh, and then there's another further question. What are the implications for us now when we open the door? Is the fall still in progress until Jesus comes? Is the fall an event or a process? Did it begin prior to Adam and Eve? And is it still happening now? So there's a kind of cluster of questions oh. around there. So, Mike, we thought we'd give you the stage and give you a chance to answer. Well, that's very kind. Um, I think, yes, all, all evil is, is event. It's not a thing. And this is where I do like Augustine, uh, because that's one of the things that he insists upon, that it's not a thing. Um, it's an absence of good, not a kind of lump of evil. It's a no thing. It's a no thing. Uh, and in a sense, it, it is always an event. It is something... Um, good that goes wrong. It is the going wrong of something. So it can't exist before anybody does anything. It can't exist no. before anybody does anything. Yeah. It's, I mean, Oliver O'Donovan used the analogy of a chair. If you come across a broken chair, you don't say, did the carpenter make this breakage? You think, oh, it's a chair that's got broken. It's an event. It's not a thing. Um, and therefore, no, sin isn't there ready to barge in. <laughs> that suggests it's a thing. It is much more what uh, the question puts at the end, an event or a process by which good things go wrong or get broken. Uh, how do we square my strange uh, idiosyncratic <laughs> maverick view of uh, the fall of the angels being what put creation wrong in the first place, that started the process of everything becoming divided against itself? Um, how do we square that uh, with Romans 5 verse 12? Um, which says that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Well, I think he's at that point simply looking at things from a, a human perspective. After all, the very tempting of Adam and Eve, the, the suggestion to them that they do something that is contrary to what God wants, is itself sinful. So even the text itself implies that there is something there before they rebel, something that's trying actively to get them to do something against the purpose of God. Now, that, that is sinful. So there's already sin there before uh, they succumb to that temptation. So I think Paul is perfectly well aware that there's sin around before that. But what he's focusing on here is the human condition, the human situation. He's saying uh, this is where it gained an entry into human life, into human society, into... Uh, the structures of human interaction. Hmm. Very good. Anything you want to add? Uh, so much that I don't think I'll start <laughs> now. I shall take Mike out and um... duff him up later. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Thank you, Mike. Well, there's your chance to answer the question. Yes, indeed. So hopefully that's um, helped. So should we move on to another one, which is uh, a question that comes from Richard Medcalf, which is a really interesting question. Um, it says, uh, here's a question for which arose in my mind today as I read Psalm 34. Verse 9, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is just one verse, but is representative of a strain of a kind of prosperity gospel in the Old Testament, that those who fear the Lord get delivered from harm, lack no good things, see their enemies defeated, are victorious in battle, etc., etc. But this doesn't stack up with reality, where godly people can suffer horribly and lack many good things in this life. 
One approach is to spiritualize it all and say, well, salvation of our souls, it all that counts, it'll all be okay in heaven. And that's what the teaching is really about. But this was King David writing and surely not what he had in mind. He seems to be actually talking about life on earth now. So um, whether it was or wasn't King David writing, I guess is a question for another day. But um, uh, there is a good point there, isn't it? That, that there is a fair bit in the Old Testament that it does seem to suggest that if you follow God and obey the law and um, seek his ways, then things will go well for you. And not just in the Old Testament. I yeah. mean, that Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you exactly. will find. Um, and I think it's one of those things that we can't, where we constantly get the balance slightly wrong because we both want we want to say two things. We want to say that God wills good things for us mm. and they're not just spiritual things. God made a physical world, loves the physical world and loves that we should rejoice in it. Um, and and as I say, wills good things for us. And we want to, we want to say that and affirm that while at the same time not then making it our fault if we're not experiencing that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and how we get that balance right, something... Mike, tell us the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it seems to me that, that, that what this question uh, has noticed is, is really there. Uh, there's, there's a real strain, there's a real tension, uh, as Jane says, throughout the Bible, but particularly perhaps in the Old Testament. Um, and in a sense, as so often in Scripture, it... it uh, doesn't kind of give you a completely balanced thing at every turn. It puts in a contrary voice occasionally. Um, and the book of Job is the contrary voice, is the voice saying, but you cannot read from this uh, the implication that if somebody is suffering, then they must have done something wrong. Um, and insists that there is such a thing as innocent suffering, that the innocent do suffer. It absolutely hammers home at the beginning that Job, Job is blameless and innocent. Um, and and yet suffers <clears throat> quite appallingly. So it seems to me that that's how the Bible operates, that it says what it says forcibly at each point, and then comes in with a correcting voice where it needs to. And the book of Job is the correcting voice to <clears throat> the what apparently would be a prosperity kind of gospel voice and that's, in Proverbs and places yeah. like that. I think the other thing I would add, which is sounds like something more that you would say, Mike, rather than me, but... Um, we're kind of we're beginning to influence it's a process, yeah, process of osmosis right. going on <laughs> um, it's just something to do with the reality of living in a fallen world that actually God's intention for us is in one sense that he gives us good things and he blesses us with the good things of this world he's created a, a world which is a garden of delight which is what the Garden of Eden means. That's what he, he, he's created for us. He, he wants us to delight. It's not his will that we suffer and, 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 and struggle. But that is now our experience of life since we live in a world which is out of joint with the purposes of its creator, as John Henry Newman put it, I think. And so, um, so it seems to me that, that you know people can prosper through all kinds of devious and ungodly means, which in a fallen world, which is, an, which is a sign that prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are very prosperous people who are also quite wicked people. And the Psalms are always complaining about it. Exactly. That's right. They've sort of grasped that idea that prosperity is not an infallible sign of God's goodness because this is a world which is not actually the way God wanted it to be. And likewise, poverty is not necessarily a sign of God's um, judgment um, because things are skewed and things are not the way they ought to be. And I suppose the I mean the other aspect of scripture which again 
points us away from a, a kind of pure prosperity gospel is is of course you know is Jesus you know Jesus the one who above every other person followed the way of God whose life was perfectly aligned to the will of God and what ends how does his end his life end it ends not in prosperity and and comfort and everything else it ends on a cross which is the kind of final answer it seems to me to any simple prosperity uh, gospel and yet the fact of the cross seems to me i mean it, it's this thing that, that you know if you like if you if you can ask ask this question you know without the fall it seems to me the incarnation would have happened but the cross wouldn't mm-hmm. i agree Likewise, I'm glad we're all agreeing on that one. Remember, you were there when you heard it. <laughs> exactly. So, so if you like, if we were living in an unfallen world, I think a prosperity gospel would work. Uh, yes, but in a fallen world, it doesn't. Well, and that's partly, and this is saying what I would say, <laughs> even even more than perhaps Graham would say, but that that God, His desire is always to bless us, not just spiritually but physically as well. But He doesn't always get His way. And but the thing about a fallen world is, is it, is it hasn't gone God's way. Yeah. Um, and then what God does about it is to make sure that even in the darkest, um, most desperate situations of, of human life, God is with us. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things the cross tells us, isn't it? That um, God does not leave us in in the mess that we have made of the world and the, the brokenness and fullness. God is always present with us. And I think that's, you know, you see that sometimes in the situations, the most appalling um, trauma and and poverty, such as I've seen in some parts of Africa, where people's faith just makes me want to weep. I, I think, would I believe under those circumstances? I'm not sure that I would. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder how much um, that I believe in God because I actually have a really very nice life. Uh, but when you see people who have lost all their possessions, been raped, had their children taken, I mean, uh, and trust absolutely in God's love for them, that is really humbling. Mm-hmm. Which is another reason why a prosperity gospel doesn't quite work, because what happens when that does happen? Yeah. Because if you do believe in a prosperity gospel and those kind of things take place, the the natural result is to lose that faith. It's yes. to say, well, God has abandoned me. God is not either not there or he's he doesn't like me. And therefore, these things have come upon upon me. And therefore, um, absence of prosperity is an automatic trigger to loss of faith, which it actually isn't around no, the world. It really isn't. It seems to me also <clears throat> one other thing I'd kind of like to throw in is that, that the tension that we notice in, in Scripture between those that seem to promise like a more kind of prosperity thing and those that insist, like Job and the, the cross, as you say, um, that it, it doesn't work like that, is that actually we, we find the same tension in our own experience. Um, clearly, there is such a thing as appalling innocent suffering. I mean, that you could just have to look at the world to, to discover and probably one's own experience. And yet there's also something true about the right living, living the way God intended. It goes with the grain in a way that wrong living doesn't. Uh, and that somehow, and it is healthier for you to, to live the way God intended than, than otherwise. Um, and in a sense, you've got that tension in experience anyway. The way, the way I sometimes put it is, um, you know, it is true that... Uh, Smoking is is bad for you, and smoking will you know, can can up the chances you getting cancer. That's the kind of stuff, teaching that Proverbs gives. You know, live right, uh, and you'll prosper. Mm-hmm. Live badly, and, and you're upping the chances that you won't. Um, what Job is saying is, just because you've got cancer doesn't mean you smoked, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and you can't read the yeah. thing the other way around the way the way 
the prosperity gospel tries to do. But but the other thing that I think is quite significant to say is that because we know that God wills good things for us, we are right to be outraged yes. at innocent suffering. Yes. Mm. And we know that we're sharing God's anger, uh, God's anger at, mm-hmm. uh, at that. And, and therefore we are committed as Christians to working against that, to actually making the world more like the world that we know God longs for. And that we are properly thankful when we yes. do receive good things from yeah. God, which is, I think, what Psalm 34 is about. It's actually saying that we acknowledge these things as not things that we have somehow deserved by mm. our piety, but they are sheer gift from God. And, and therefore, the discipline of regular thanksgiving is a very important Christian discipline because it reminds reminds me that the things I have that I enjoy are not mine by some dessert, some some the result of my goodness or my piety or my prayer or my, my service, but they are a sheer gift mm. from God that I am to constantly give thanks to him for rather than just assume that they're mine because I have some sort of right to them. Mm. Mm. Just as the, the the troubles and sufferings that I go through are not necessarily my my fault either yeah. or something I need to blame okay. myself for. Yeah. Very good. Interesting question. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much to um, Richard. Well, I think we've probably reached the end of Godpod 58 um, and uh, Godpod 59 will follow <laughs> fairly soon on its <laughs> tracks, no doubt. We'll soon be at 60. We'll soon be nearing the retirement age. But I don't think we're going to retire at that point, are we, really? I think we'll lift the retirement age in our case, shall we? Exactly. I, right. I think we'll kind of take on the new English batsman approach and just keep going. <laughs> 200 not out. Yes, Kevin Peterson, <laughs> here we come. Um, I was rather near to a sporting analogy, which Jane really disproves our disability. Yes, there, absolutely. Time to cut this short, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. So uh, thank you very much um, for listening, and thank you to Jane. Thank you. And uh, to Michael as well. And uh, well, keep listening. And the other one, will, next one will be along fairly soon. So um, goodbye from all of us. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.